Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. All right, Rachel, um, what do we got going this week? Well, we've got a nice roundtable discussion on the topic of punk and philosophy. And we're doing this because uh, Richard and a colleague just had a book come out on the topic. So uh, the contributors to that book are, or some of the contributors anyway, are with us today. Yeah, yeah. It's a good-sized collection. Um, I think 31 articles and 30 contributors. And we've got eight or nine of them. Um, our co-host for this week is um, Josh Heater, my co-editor on this project. So he'll be there um, you know, for the interview portion. And this, this project was Josh's idea about a decade or so ago. So he'll tell that, that whole story. Um, but I was you know, very glad that Josh asked me to um, co-edit this with him um, just because I have a background in this. So we do these pop culture books um, you know, all the time, and they're usually things that we enjoy, um, you know, for various reasons, but just, you know, on sort of rare occasions, you feel kind of a deep connection to the content. So I, you know, I grew up in the 70s, right when punk was hitting, and played in a number of punk bands um, as a kid. Um, we were great and wildly successful um, <laughs> in our minds for a, a while there, but um, it was, you know, it was something that I did for, you know, it, it, that's the better part of a decade with hardcore bands or punk adjacent bands. And so, yeah, it was, it was you know, a lot of fun to just kind of revisit this um, and hear other people's take on the, the music and the artists and so yeah, forth. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it's, um, we ended up just having a really nice discussion. Uh, shall we head to it? Yes, let's do. Okay, let's bring on the interview. Um, Josh... I know this project's been sort of a long time coming. Can you uh, fill us in on the, the origin of it? Yeah, sure. So this is probably like 2010 or 2011. And um, the different popular culture and philosophy series have been uh, chugging along for a while. And it dawned on me, you know, nobody's done a punk volume. And that seemed like a miss. And, um, you know, th there had been a, a hip hop in, and philosophy volume. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And um, at the time, I think there was a blues and philosophy volume that also seems warranted, but nobody done punk. And so, you know, I got together a, a proposal and sent it off to the three or four publishers that, that do this sort of thing. And, and in fairness to them, I was a graduate student at the time, just a, a lowly worker, but uh, yeah, it got uh, summary rejected across the board and kind of put it away for a while. And then uh, Richard, I don't know if you remember, we were talking on, online, I believe, and you just mentioned something about a punk band of some sort. And I said, you know, back in the day, this was in spring of 2021, I think, um, back in the day, I had this proposal that I shopped for him, you know, where maybe it's worth polishing, you know, dusting off. And Richard uh, jumped on it. He was, he was right. Um, he uh, he suggested we, we set it out again, and, and that's what we did. And I think I can speak for Richard. I feel we're, we are completely 100% vindicated um, not, we just got flooded with a lot of great uh, submissions, uh, not only of quantity, but of quality. Uh, yeah, uh, so it's been a real joy to work with, with, with all you folks. And I think the, the final product will speak for itself for anybody who's interested in the topic. Yeah, and, and the sales have been good, um, which isn't the most important thing, but it's nice because the publisher has asked us to do a, a follow-up. So we can announce here, and if any of you are interested in participating, and, and we've heard from some of you, um, we'll be doing a volume on post-punk and philosophy, and you can find the the calls for that in your um, email baskets because we've we've already sent them out. So yeah, great. Um, and Josh, I'm I'm glad you did that. So it's um, this ended up being a, a collection that that I'm really pleased with, 
And sometimes you do these things and you get done and you kind of go, ah, you know, that's, that's okay. And, and this one I just, I thought was great. I, I like every chapter. So, all right. Um, let's um, turn it over to the contributors and I'll um, ask you to give a one or two minute overview of your chapters, um, starting with Bailey Peterson. So Bailey. All right. So I, I don't know. I think what Josh was saying, there's some very natural connections between punk and philosophy. So it wasn't kind of surprising. When I first um, saw the call for abstracts, I thought about writing just about that, about how punk and philosophy have these common virtues. But in order to do so, I realized I needed to say a little bit about what I took the sort of essential properties of punk to be. So that ended up being what I wrote about. I still think that there's a reason we're all here. There's a reason why both of these things kind of tend to draw us in. It has to do with authenticity, maybe being a little skeptical of the status quo, maybe asking people to give reasons for their beliefs instead of just falling in line with whatever might be currently accepted. So all of those things, I think, fall into both categories. And yeah, I really enjoyed exploring those connections, specifically on the punk side. Nice. Marty Sulek. Um, yeah, so uh, of course, my, my chapter's on uh, punk political philosophy. And uh, this is kind of an interesting subject to, to me uh, because it, it has a certain contradiction uh, to it that, you know, can there be a punk uh, political philosophy given that the primary political expression of punk uh, political thought is generally rotates around the concept of anarchy, which is kind of the absence of uh, rules or rulers or those ruled. Uh, so how can you have a um, non-political politics uh, kind of kind of thing? Um, and so I kind of worked through some of those uh, issues. Um, and then kind of points to, uh, you know, the actual politics of punk is actually kind of very scattered. I mean, you have uh, punks along every point on the political spectrum. And uh, and uh, Jesse, uh, I, 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 I found a lot of um, similar notes in, in your uh, chapter as well, uh, uh, talking about that. Uh, so I, I, after talking a, a bit about that, um, I also, uh, you know, kind of come to this conclusion that maybe it's uh, better to look to actions rather than words and uh, and look at some of um, the kind of political involvement, but also uh, just involvement in uh, various causes that uh, punks have had. Um, and there, there's quite a lot of instances of those. Um, but uh, really the, the, um, the two kind of cases I look at in particular are Bob Geldof uh, with uh, Live Aid and then um, and then Velvet, the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed, and his influence on the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia in 1989. So that's uh, kind of my approach to the whole. And, and kind of trying to come to this kind of unified theory of punk uh, political philosophy, which uh, I can elaborate on at a later point, maybe. Nice. Um, Gwen Grewal. Hello. Um, Hello. Yeah, so... I, uh, I wrote about Diogenes the Cynic, uh, <laughs> maybe an unexpected, this is taking an unexpected turn now. <laughs> um, and my sort of, my angle was that punk has really kind of been done over and over again, and yet it, it can't acknowledge itself to be something that's done over and over again, because that's really not punk. So it's sort of... Um, on the one hand, about this continual rejection, even of itself. Um, and in Diogenes the Cynic, that kind of comes out because he's always continually masturbating. And that's <laughs> the sort of metaphor for this continual rejection that is punk, that is philosophy. Um, among other things, I touch on <laughs> exile and adultery um, and these various sort of forms of rejecting um, the mainstream, which is always kind of uh, threatening to become a mainstream thing and therefore to lose the very kind of lore that made it sexy. Mm -hmm. Nice. Patrick Anderson. Hey, thanks. Um, so yeah, the, uh, the chapter I contributed is on uh, feminist aesthetics and the Riot Girl movement. And what I specifically wanted to address was the standard approach is that the Riot Girls, uh, like Bikini Kill and other bands, 
are doing feminist politics through punk music or through punk aesthetics. But what I noticed that nobody had really talked about before is the way that Riot Girl music itself could be seen as uh, feminist aesthetic creation itself. So it's not just, you know, and if we're taking sort of like the dominant language of feminist aesthetic criticism from the 80s and 90s, um, it's not just a critique of the male gaze within rock music generally or punk music specifically, but it's also a way of producing music and writing music such that the male gaze is fundamentally disrupted and replaced with a different kind of gaze, which according to the feminist aestheticians um, of that period, they were really interested in how do we produce art that makes the viewer sort of see the world through different eyes that are not male-centric uh, viewpoint. So I wanted to kind of highlight the fact that Riot Girl music isn't just using punk to do feminist politics, it's actually feminist aesthetics in punk itself. Nice. Timothy Quietek. Um, so I, I <coughs> wrote about um, how punk lacks an essence, by which I just mean there's not uh, a single thing that I think uh, actually unifies it, which uh, has many practical virtues. Uh, I think the, the greatest of which is that it works as a kind of anti-gatekeeping mechanism so that uh, crabby old dinosaurs don't get to tell people who are trying to do punk that they're doing it wrong. Um, yeah, that's basically my view. Yeah, nice. And um, Jesse Prince, you contributed two chapters. Yeah, I'm kind of embarrassed about that. Um, first of all, I'm huge uh, gratitude to uh, to you, Richard, and, and to Josh um, for allowing that. I'm very indecisive. You were kind enough to <laughs> let me go in two directions at once. Uh, one of my favorite words in English is quackreversal, which is the word for going in all directions at once, which is usually my, my favorite mode of activity. Uh, but also a shout out to the authors. I was blown away by this volume. This is a really impressive volume. I've read, you know, through various popular philosophy volumes. I've been in some of them. This is just a very, very high level of achievement. The quality of the, of the contributions is uh, really outstanding. And the synergy between them is outstanding. So a lot of things that have already been said are very much um, in line um, with things I wanted to say. In fact, my one of my two chapters probably should have been pulled. The, I wrote one chapter on... Um, what I call the paradox of the poser, a poser paradox. And the basic idea is that in our effort to gatekeep the punk scene, we spend a lot of time like deciding who's a poser. I used to joke that uh, the operational definition of a poser is somebody who got into uh, punk a day after you did. So there's like always <laughs> this effort to, to weed out who are the fakes. Um, but in a way, we're all fakes, um, not just because authenticity is a kind of myth, but because punk itself is a movement, it's a uniform, it's an ethos that's shared and collective. So how do you reconcile this pejorative opposer with a movement that's basically about conformity at some level? So one chapter grappling with that. Another chapter uh, with great synergy, uh, as Marty already flagged with, with what he had to say. Um, and there I really was, um, wanting to take on this, this tendency we have as people on the left to treat those on the far right, the extremists um, uh, like the Nazi punks, as if they're, they really never belonged in the movement. And I, I think that's uh, an anachronism. I do think, as Marty put it, the political spectrum of punk uh, you know, is, is fully encompassing. It spans um, all poles and everything in between. We need to make sense of that. And, and one way to make sense of it is to just make a disunity claim that punk is not a politically coherent uh, ethos. Another is to find a common denominator. So in that chapter, I try to bring out the idea of disaffection and argue that a kind of integral part of the punk ethos is a general sense of alienation or frustration or, or maybe a kind of sneering contempt uh, for, for overarching um, societal norms. Um, so much synergy there. The punk poser chapter, for those of you who want to save time, another paper in the volume, a really terrific paper in the volume, basically hit 
on the same paradox, except articulates it, I think, better. Uh, so I direct people to read uh, Peter Barry's paper, a shout out to Peter Barry for a really nice work on, on the theme of that first contribution. Nice, thanks. And then um, next up is George Dunn, who I'll mention is an old friend of the show, and we've, we've had him on before. So welcome back, George. Oh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so my chapter is uh, titled Be Like Johnny. And uh, the Johnny in the title is uh, Johnny Ramone. Uh, but the title actually comes from a song by a contemporary um, punk band from uh, Liverpool named uh, Eloy. And it, my chapter is, is essentially about uh, the philosophy of work. Um, and um, I illustrate my points through the example of two bands. Uh, one is the Ramones, who need no introduction. And the other is uh, the band that I just mentioned, um, um, Eloy. Um, and also, I, I, I talk about um, how the DYI ethic of punk, its, it's importance. Um, as specifically as a vehicle of self-transformation, creativity, freedom, you know, empowerment. And um, so, so one of the things that comes out when you, when you look at the uh, philosophy of, of work, there's kind of ironic in a way. Um, and you, you get this from uh, Matthew Crawford, contemporary philosopher, but also from someone like uh, Alexander um, Koya, uh, um, a very important 20th century existentialist Marxist philosopher. But the idea is that that freedom um, in, in the virtues that enable us to live as free men and women uh, come through obedience to the demands of work. We learn self-discipline, we learn diligence and, uh, and, and fortitude, and we become masters of ourselves. And, and uh, masters of materials that we work with. And so I argue that that very much describes uh, Ramones. Um, also, another theme that I touch on in my chapter is um, the relationship between creativity and imitation. And I think there's a, you know, um, often we think of those two things as, as, as inimical, opposed to each other. You don't want to be a copycat. You want to be wholly original. That's what it means to be, um, to be creative. Uh, but, but I draw on um, contemporary philosopher named Rene Girard, who argues that what is really salient about humans, what makes us humans, is our capacity to um, imitate, and that we learn through imitation. And imitation is part of this whole process of, uh, of, of apprenticeship, whereby we you know, acquire um, the skills in order to you know, live as uh, free and, and um, self-directed, self-disciplined human beings. Um, so, so I talked about this band Eloy. Um, Eloy is from Liverpool. Eloy consists of two girls. In fact, the name Eloy is Cantonese for two girls. So. There's Rose and Matilda Farrell, who are currently uh, 15 and 13. Um, they take their inspiration from the Ramones. Um, they started out performing Ramones covers, but then they began to branch out. There are a couple albums out now. They, and they really, really exemplify this uh, DYI ethic. They, they built their own recording studio. Um, they've used rooms of their house for recording, taught themselves how to mix. And though they started out just imitating the Ramones, um, they've, they've, they've moved away from that and developed their, their own style. But um, the, the, the argument that I make is that um, you know, when, when we consistently imitate someone that we really admire over a long period of time, what begins is just an outward reproduct reproduction of someone else's gestures, right? It can become so internalized, and so it becomes it becomes who you are, right? And then that becomes the basis um, from which you can you can branch out and um, and become genuinely creative. Nice. And then finally, um, Tiffany Montoya. Yeah, I, so my chapter was actually a, um, a sort of Marxist analysis of punk 
um, both of the music itself and also of the culture and the scene. Um, and so I think it's, it fits well with some of the other topics that have been talked about, especially some of the other ones involving political philosophy, because um, there's this, this conversation that's continuous about, like, is there a, a continuity among punk or is it just completely um, uh, discontinuous and, um, and you have things like Nazism come about? Um, and so in my chapter, I sort of explain different levels or different tiers of class consciousness that I think that you that does unify punk, at least in the sense that there that it that punk music portrays these different levels of class consciousness. Um, and it can explain um, everything from the from the sort of nihilist um nihilist sort of anarchist or even nazi punks as well as leading all the way into a sort of um workers sort of conscious class consciousness um and another part that another thing i talk about within my chapter is that in general the scene like the scene itself the diy culture is an example of a proletarian culture um and that and then the returning to the music the music itself sort of creates these like affective states because of the way the music sounds, because of different musical qualities within the style of punk music. And then that's that creates these affective states that can potentially be revolutionary or they could potentially be um, counter-revolutionary. Um, but it's it creates this fervor, this, this, this fervor within people. So that's what that's what my chapter was about. Nice. Great. Um, yeah, so now I feel like we should represent the other 23 chapters. So Josh, if you could just briefly canvas the rest of the book, that, that would be great. Or alternatively, I've got some questions. So I'll throw this out to whoever wants to answer any of these. Um, first one up, um, how did you get into punk? Um, were any of you actual punks? Whatever that means, you were in bands or you squatted or you had a mohawk or, or some such. Um, what, what, what's your connection here? Do you mean if you got like kicked out of high school for having a mohawk and wearing a leather jacket, that kind of thing? Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. If, if you got kicked out of anything for your hair, um, you were either a punk or a hippie, probably. So, I love Jesse's line that we're all fakes. That felt like the truest thing I've ever heard about myself. Yeah, I, I grew up, um, you know, in a punk movement, and I was in a band and all that, and. The, the whole time I was always sort of hyper aware of the fact that we were all just wannabes and was the biggest collection of, you know, it was almost like James Franco in the last couple of episodes of Freaks and Geeks, you know, with spray painting his hair different colors and calling himself a punker, right? And, um, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I actually, I, this, this connects to something I thought was really interesting about what George was saying that, um, I don't know. I think I think something can happen when you try to imitate something and you do it unsuccessfully and then you end up being something genuine by accident. Um, so there are like there are some concrete musical examples that are escaping me right now, but I feel like I've heard this story that like Kurt Cobain thought he sounded like or thought he was trying to sound like John Lennon or something like that. You know, something that like if you've heard those two people, you were like, there's no resemblance at all, like not even close. But like his voice was so fantastic for for what it was, you know. And I mean, we're we're trying to talk about, you know, being punks or whatever. I think there's an equivalent kind of lifestyle thing where like maybe there is a like a moment where you're like trying to be something, and then you get in a you do a bad job necessarily because like we're imitators, but we're always kind of bad imitators. And then we yeah. end up being something distinctive by accident. You know, thinking about Bailey's chapter, um, I, you know, drawing parallels between philosophy and punk, there is a big parallel there. Um, you know, when I first started teaching and when I first started presenting at conferences, or just even going to conferences, I get that feeling like people are going to, you know, that, um, imposter syndrome people are going to figure out i'm not supposed to be here and that's i had that same feeling when i started going to shows right that you know i'm not a you know i'm just a hanger on i'm not really cool i'm not a a, a, a real punk um but yeah um you do sort of i don't know if you at some point that just sort of goes away and you do get this 
authenticity or um, this new thing where you're just being yourself and it's not quite the thing you were imitating, but it's not quite completely divorced from it. Um, so yeah, there's just another interesting parallel between uh, philosophy and, and punk. I think one thing I would say, and this kind of reflects also on George, the kind of fake it till you make it almost aspect of punk or anything. But what I think made me feel like I could be part of punk or part of philosophy at all has to do with that recognition eventually that the rules aren't as kind of solid as you thought that they were. So for me, what punk gave me and what philosophy gave me in both cases was a way to kind of like reject this. I'll just make it, I'll try to give examples that'll make it clearer. So I wasn't popular. I couldn't fit. There was just no way. I was weird. I didn't have the right clothes, whatever. Punk gave me a way to say, it's not that I'm trying to fit into this scheme and I can't. It was a way to say, I don't fit because I choose not to because I reject your very structure. I don't even want to be part of it. And similarly with philosophy, specifically with questions in philosophy of religion, I was like puzzled by these questions just as a kid. I have a kid who's already weird. I don't know. I'm going to try to do a good job with him. But I would ask people like, does God exist? You know, what, what's the deal when we die? I was really puzzled by these questions, but I wasn't raised with religion. And most people I asked just gave me what they believed, what they grew up with, what was their own status quo. And it wasn't until my first philosophy class that I heard and read, I mean, I have goosebumps, that's kind of embarrassing, at least there's no visuals for this. But in any case, like I was so just compelled by that the style and approach of philosophy to say, hey, like, it's not just that I believe this, I'll give you the reasons I believe it. I, I remember reading David Hume and just being so excited. And then later, um, like Bertrand Russell, why I'm not a Christian, I ended up having a more nuanced view eventually grappling with this, but it was just, again, a different approach. So a way to step outside and say, I'm not popular because I'm trying and failing. I just don't even buy it. Or I'm not religious in a particular way because I wasn't raised that way. But also maybe I can come at it from a different angle. So in both cases, I don't know if that's what it is. That's what draws me into both. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, um, Billy, because uh, like, for me, I have a kind of a similar thing in terms of why I was drawn to punk, the punk scene and going to shows and how I got into philosophy. And uh, I don't think that I did have the, I probably never really had the imposter syndrome thing. And I've heard a lot of people talk about that. And, uh, but I think for me, it was that like, I knew I didn't fit society, but I wasn't the problem society was the problem. I was fine, right? It's it's the way that things are done that that I find to be the, the problem. And so going to shows was a way of getting outside of that and saying, hey, there's a different way to do this, you know? Um, uh, the experience of, uh, of, a, of a live punk show in a dive bar, you know, you're covered in beer and sweat and spit and sometimes blood and whatever, but you pick people up when they fall on the floor, you know, like, I mean, there, there's a whole kind of different way of relating to people in that setting. And when I discovered philosophy, that gave me sort of the intellectual verbal tools to start articulating to people what was wrong with, and I'll say it this way, their society, you know? So I found a place where I could go and express outside of the rules that, or outside of the structures that I found to be a problem. But then philosophy helped me kind of come back and actually talk to the people who were so committed to them and just ask them, like, do you know even the basic things about how this world works? And, and just by being able to do that, I found it to be so liberating, not only to clarify for myself, but also to uh, ask other pe people uh, questions um, in, in that way. And, uh, and so, yeah, so, I mean, it was a way of me trying to fit in a world I don't fit in, so to speak, in both cases. Nice. George, did well, you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you asked about, you know, how we get involved in, in punk. And I honestly don't know. I just kind of, I, um, I think I, I heard the Ramones, I heard the Sex Pistols, and started seeking out other people who were interested in that kind of music. But I was I was part of the uh, punk rock scene in St. Louis in uh, the late '70s, and at that time there weren't very many of us. We we uh, used to call ourselves the Fun 100, 
because there were roughly 100 of us. Um, and, you know, as, as you guys were saying, you know, it seemed like most of the people who were drawn to punk were misfits in one way or another. Um, but this was a, this was a community of misfits that that was very welcoming, you know, to to everybody. And the other thing that, that I really um, liked about the punk scene was this the, the the DIY element, which I talked a little bit about, you know, in my in my chapter, um, because there, I mean, there, there were no venues that were seeking punk bands. Right. So, so bands had to find their own venues, you know, American Legion halls, that's our, our house parties, that sort of thing, advertise their own venues, um, um, create their own fanzines. Um, interesting story. Um, we got to know a, um, a journalist at the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch who um, interviewed um, me and my sister, Steve Pick, and uh, a few other people um, about the um, about the St. Louis punk scene, and mainly about why we were so unhappy with the local rock and roll radio station, which wasn't playing our music. Uh, so they ran this article about us, and then uh, this journalist, Elaine Veets, um, contacted us and said, "By the you know the Ramones are in town." Uh, would would you like their number? Would you like the number of the hotel where they're staying? And so we ended up calling them up um, and uh, telling them that we were with the local fanzine. It was it didn't even exist. We just invented this fanzine. So we're this local <laughs> fanzine. We'd like to interview you. And so we sat down for I don't know about an hour, interviewed the Ramones. Had this great interview. Um, another friend had taken this really terrific photograph of Ramones on stage. And so we said, well, okay, we need to put together our fanzine now. Um, and so the fanzine jet lag was born out of that, which um, um, actually became um, uh, a pretty pretty important fanzine in, in the Midwest, but that was how it was born. You know, so there, so there was this sense that, you know, we, we can just try things, we can just do things. And if we fail, yeah, well, that's that's life, you know. If we succeed, that's amazing. So there was this this uh, th this freedom that we felt that we had, and I think part of it was simply that you know we were we were the misfits, you know, you know we didn't, you know, we, we were, weren't really part of, you know, um, the existing society at our high schools or whatever, and so we that gave us the freedom to create something new for ourselves. Nice. All right. Um, oh, yeah. Go ahead, Marty. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, throw in my two cents, uh, I guess. But uh, yeah, uh, my, um, you know, my, my first year of high school was in 1979, which was a, a extremely auspicious year for for North American punk, uh, and uh, particularly growing up in well Calgary, which is kind of like you know north of Montana, and uh, you know very. How to say, um, you know, it was it was that classic thing. You know, you had the jocks and the freaks and the geeks and the band people, and you know the, and but you know uh, the nice thing about high school is you know they 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 kind of shake up the marbles and you get a new distribution. And uh, um, I I went from being a, a total loser to being in with a, a gang of misfits who. Um, just happened to be uh, tuned into this, uh, the, what was happening with the, the music scene and just sick to death of, uh, you know, the Eagles being played for the 50 billionth time on the, on the radio. And, and the, here was something new that was just ripping that all. Oh, and disco don't, don't let me forget to mention disco. Although George came, came to disco's defense a, a while ago. Yeah. In a personal meeting, but uh, but yeah, it just uh, it was such a fresh um, um, and and very welcoming of of you know these kind of geeks and misfits that uh, we felt really felt we are. We never really got into the fashion part of it. We 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 kind of kind of had the feeling that was a little affectatious, but we were totally into the music and and totally uh, um, had the attitude, um, you know. I'm a eight-time veteran of being suspended from high school, so uh, I've got my cred. <laughs> I got my street cred. <laughs> great, 
Yeah, Jesse. Nice. Just, just, I mean, echoing a lot of what's been said, I think, you know, I think I grew up in New York. I, my brother was in the 70s punk scene. I was always involved um, and, and it was a kind of epicenter. So unlike these other places, I went to art school, like I had bands, I, you know, my most recent Mohawk was maybe a month ago. So um, mm -hmm. uh, I think Richard, you asked in the past since were any of you punk as if it were like a, a phase. Um, <laughs> I want to, I want to uh, remark on something. Uh, Gwen said in her opening gambit, which is like being punk, like fuck that I had a man. That's not what made me a punk rocker or that I, you know, rock the fashion, fuck that. Being punk is an ethos. And I think it's an ethos that's in somewhat imposed when Patrick said, you know, um, there's a way in which you don't fit the, the world and, and you feel that poignantly. I think a lot of people who are attracted to the scenes um, were really victims of that. Even in New York, where the scene was big and thriving, we were all fucked up. We were all weird. Um, Rosemary Garland Thompson in Disability Studies has a book on staring, where she talks about the word misfit as really being like a mismatch, a misfit. As Patrick said, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just you don't fit with the way the world is. If you think about disability, um, most people I know are, are, you know, would qualify for one reason or another because they they don't align with how things are organized. A lot of it is mental illness. And if you think about just different kinds of mental illness, like being, being depressed, being ADHD, being psychotic, being borderline, those are all just modes of punk rock, you know? And as far as I'm concerned, anyone who's coping with that has more cred as being punk rock, inherently, authentically punk rock, than somebody who's listening to the right tracks on their you know, iPod. So I, I do think it, it cuts deep and I think because it cuts deep, it's often a matter of survival. So for people who are attracted to these movements, it's the one place where, where they can exhale. Um, and I think for a lot of us, you know, not that everyone survives punk, because we all probably in this group have lost people, you know, from our respective scenes. But I do think it is a place where people who don't feel like they're able to get along outside have a bastion, have a safe haven. And that's uh, that's really really important and integral to, to who we are. Yeah, well, that makes me. I have a question related to that. So when when Richard and I were putting together this list of questions, um, and he was asking if anyone was a punk or is continues to be, um, I thought in some cases uh, some of the participants would I was thinking would be too young um, to identify with that to, because they weren't there for that movement and so on the one hand it seems like you're making a distinction between this book and the next one right a punk volume and a post-punk volume um and i guess i'm just sort of wondering if you were born considerably after the punk movement um what were you listening to what were you identifying with was it the original kind of punk music the scene the the attitude so I'll jump in here. I, um, so I actually um, was drawn to a lot of like the hardcore scene from the 80s. Um, and that was before my time. <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, like the I was drawn to <clears throat> the Dead Kennedys and um, Minor Threat and Black Flag and like those sorts of like early um, yeah, like the the hardcore like eighties punk, like that was. I loved the the grittiness of it, like the how like shitty the recordings were. Like I think that like added something to it. Whereas all of the modern stuff was very like like recorded very clean and very um, it was very manicured, which gave it which was awesome. Like it also that that was that created like the, an awesome sound as well. But there was something about that grittiness that I was drawn to, and it was before my time so um so i think i think my relation to the past of punk was more of um just sort of exploring the, I, I i discovered the music through um like back in the day when we had cds <laughs> <laughs> um and i'd go we'd go to my friends and i we'd go to different um still like cd stores and i know people here might be saying like oh we went to record stores and <laughs> um but we go to different cd stores and um and we would just find find these there'd be sections of like the punk section and we would like we'd find these names that we'd be like oh that kind of rings a bell i think i've heard of that before and then we'd listen to it and then that's how we kind of explore that's how i explored and like discovered these bands that were 
not around me, um, like not on the radio, not um, anything like that. I mean, not even my, my parent. My parents didn't listen to that. You know, like my dad listened to classic rock. My mom listened to everything, funk, disco, classic rock, all that sort of stuff. So, so for me, punk was very much an exploration. It was sort of like an activity that I just did when I was a teenager. It was just something that I like stumbled upon and then just went down the rabbit hole. So I, yeah. I was also um, like not alive uh, to see the Ramones in the seventies, but um, I, I think that I had a similar dynamic where it's like, if you can just get one point of contact, you can find like the songs that that band covers and who they thank in their liner notes and the bands that tend to play with them. And like, if you just have the, I don't know, curiosity and enthusiasm about it, like it's very, it, it, it's all part of one network basically. So for me, I, I grew up near Boston and there was a, punk and hardcore, like a different sense of hardcore than the 80s hardcore we're talking about. Um, but, you know, I, I could go see like Bane and there were always these, always these like great people there who would be like, oh, you like this, you have to hear Minor Threat. Or like, oh, I'll make you a copy of this. Or, oh, you know, like there were all these little leads that you could follow, which made it kind of a fun thing to explore. Which also, if you want to talk about connections to philosophy for me, when I, when I like came to do philosophy, it's like something about it made sense. It was like, there was an old neural pathway that I was able to use where I'm like, oh, I like this person. And they talk about this person. Maybe I'll read this. And they talk about that. Maybe I'll read this. Timothy, oh. I've had a really similar um, experience. Um, the first punk bands I, I got into when I was born in 81, started getting the music as like mid nineties, early nineties, mid nineties. And the first punk bands I got into um, were like the kind of like a, the Southern California um, fast and loud punk bands of the 90s like Bad Religion and, and Rancid. Um, eventually, I you know, I did the, what you did. I read the liner notes. I saw who they were covering. And, I, you know, I, then I found a whole other plethora of bands. But just that one other connection to philosophy or just like having a, a, an intellectual life. I do think I was drawn to, you know, these, these bands are talking about things or seeing about things that you know, I hadn't really been exposed to, and just um, even if I don't end up, you know, following their line of thought, just being exposed to different lines of thought was really important for me. And to the point of like, um, I was think this is kind of funny. When I started studying for the GRE, and I was going over the vocabulary, multiple times I had this experience where I thought, you know, the only time I've ever heard this word was in a bad religion song. Like that's the only time. You had the bad religion dictionary. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's yeah. right. Well, well, Tim, Tim, I want to make you. Uh... Oh, go ahead, Bailey. No, no, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say that echoes my experience directly. My first mixtape, a boy I was dating, Eric. Thank you, but he gave me AFI and the Vandals, and I remember like music was okay before that. Like I liked music, but I didn't really like feel it. I just remember hearing that and thinking, this is new. This is something, this is what I love. And then, yeah, going to shows, even just local shows, I used to like, I mean, it sounds so poser, which it was, but look at people's captions and then, oh, that's a new band I can check out and things like that. I kind of want to hear what people's first <laughs> band or mixtape or CD or whatever. Oh yeah, but let's let's move to that. I was just gonna say real quickly to to Tim that um, I saw the Ramones a bunch of times in the late seventies and early eighties, and just so you feel better, they were terrible live. You 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 wanted no part of that, and in fact, you know you would be screaming to get your twelve dollars back. So you didn't miss anything, honest. Um, yeah. So yeah, good good question. So what 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 was it exactly, Bailey? Is it? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I just gonna chime in. I mean, the the greatest question was sort of about the people who weren't around back in the day. As somebody who kind of was, or at least sort of second generation in, I do feel like punk just keeps reinventing itself. And like, I remember when when Nirvana first had their um, MTV video, Smells Like Teen Spirit, on television, my brother called me up and he said, oh, they're finally playing punk rock on TV. And it wasn't that we were particularly taken with Nirvana, but it was like, oh, okay, they're 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 like getting mainstream airplay and they're playing serious, you know, what we thought was normal music. 
real music. Um, and then when Riot Girl happened, like I saw those bands every fucking chance I got. And I thought it was the most exciting thing that had happened since, you know, I was a little kid. So it really, it was totally different. It was important that it was different because even though the, the scene that I was in was very gender split and was, you know, there were a lot of people who were out and queer, it also was simultaneously chauvinistic and homophobic and had all these inherent bigotries. And to see Riot Girl movement really developing a different aesthetic and emphasizing things that weren't quite as upfront in a lot of the bands I was exposed to, that was really exciting. And it was, it was taking punk in new directions. And now like the Afro-punk music, you might go and say, oh, I don't recognize the punk in a lot of these, uh, these bands. Um, but that, that's happening and that, that umbrella has been an opportunity for people to feel uh, that they are empowered enough to express themselves as being deviant, as being weirdos, as being misfits and outsiders. That's so important. And that there always is that mentality. There always is that subset of society who feel alienated, who find in this tradition a way to make noise um, and be heard. And for all of us old timers, we keep getting excited and learning you know, new forms of expression through each subsequent generation. So punk is like the phoenix that, that won't die. Nice, nice. So yeah, let, let's pick up Bailey's question. So what, what was it exactly? Was it your first album, first mixtape or early influential one? I had a question to ask later, which is, you know, Desert Island, one one album, you know, what do you take with you? But we can sort of morph those, right? What What's what's the really big early early um, punk album for you? And, and I'll just say for me, it is probably um, Rocket to Russia and you know, that that was the one that I just played to death. And like Jesse said, it felt like being a little kid in a way. It's like, wow, this is exciting in a way that, that nothing had been for a long time. For for me, it was Patty Smith's Horses. Nice. So, I, in fact, I, I distinctly remember when uh, my friend David Sheehy came over to my house, put it on the record player, and I was just, I was just blown away. I'd never heard anything like that before. And I was just completely captivated. And um, and then later I got into the Pistols, the Ramones, who uh, I saw in the 70s and who were probably the best live act I've ever seen. Um, but George, you're, you're blowing my cover with Tim. I'm, I'm trying to reassure him that the Ramones well, live was know. something. Were, now, I, now I don't know how to feel. They were so bad. It was, it was, it was <laughs> embarrassing. But, you know, they get better. No, but I, 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 I saw the Ramones. Um, well, I, I, I saw it in a very, very small venue in um, near East St. Louis where they were performing with the Runaways. And this was one of their early U.S. tours. Never seen a band like that before. It was amazing. Yeah, good. Other, other, I, yeah. I was going to just add, I second Patty's Horses. Um, that was also really a big influence on me. Um, and just kind of in response to the the earlier question about not being alive for punk, for me, that was like its charm is that, you know, I was rejecting everything that was on the airwaves and I was kind of like, yeah, but I know what was really cool was like this stuff you don't listen to anymore, <laughs> which may be why I do ancient philosophy too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Patty Smith. Well, I have to say, so um, for myself, you know, high school newbie meeting all new people you're listening to all the new music the, the, what happened in 1979 well the north american release of the clash the clash the eponymous album and then london calling and uh that that was just a, a revelation uh to me um hearing hearing those uh, two albums uh it was the, like the biggest one-two punch uh, uh of my life but actually um you know Hearing the the Sex Pistols, uh, never mind the Bullocks, uh, for the first time too. I, 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 it's like a, it wasn't the first punk that I listened to, but uh, I, I have a definite recollection of the first time. You know, because you know, with my my friends and I, you know, uh, it was very hard to listen to music the way we, we like to at home because we're living with parents and everything. So we invariably would go out and drive around in their car, which was like our mobile living room, and uh, and. Uh, being from Canada, and you know there there was um, 
several British uh, fellows in in my circle. Uh, you know, uh, it was almost exclusively the Brit the British punk scene, a little bit of Canadian uh, punk scene as, as well. So, so you know the the Clash and the, and and the Sex Pistols. Uh, that that was definitely my baptism by, by fire, and uh, I've been a convert ever since. Yeah. So it's hard for me to find or think about like an exact start and of of my first like CD or my first record um, because I first listened to No Doubt's Tragic Kingdom when I was younger um, and that was sort of like a tiny entry point. It was like a step in, but I wasn't like you know I wasn't I wasn't necessarily aware of this larger scene called punk when I had heard when I heard Tragic Kingdom um, and then after that I went through like a metal phase <laughs> I went through like a little period of a metal phase in like middle school or so and then after that it was probably um I would say it was two because I'm not sure which which one which album had more influence I would have to say that it was Rancid's Let's Go and um and Sing the Sorrow from AFI so those two those two um albums I think sort of like click like made something click in me where I was like where I then discovered the rest of everything yeah for me I had like um a couple of CDs you know I mean my first exposure was probably to like the summer of punk bands from 94 so like um Offspring and um uh Green Day and Rancid and stuff like that and you know I knew of some pop punk stuff like Blink-182 and I had kind of discovered Bad Religion but the one other than going to shows and and meeting people who knew of bands and, and taking note and looking for them later uh the one thing that i bought was a cd copy of epitaph records punkorama volume five because and this is where this is where i learned how to find new bands if you could find comps comps had everything so you could get comps for like anywhere from two three four five bucks so you could just get them everywhere for super cheap they always had like 20 30 some songs on them and if you even if you just bought like 10 of them you spent less than 50 bucks and you probably had exposure to like you know 300 bands and so comps is how i did it and punkorama volume 5 was a big one i was on vacation with um my grandparents uh going to the northern part of michigan's lower peninsula and we went into a mall that had like a big, you know, it wasn't like Sam Goody, but it was something like that, you know, like a big, you know, CD store. And I saw Punkorama Volume 5 and it was $4.99. And I was like, I can convince them to buy me this. You know, and I was like, I don't know, maybe 12 or something. And uh, and I put it in my Discman player in the car and listened to it the whole way home. And by the time I was home, I was a changed kid, man. I like, I like this, this kind of like, way you have to be economical at a certain point like the getting the comps or getting i remember some albums where it'd be like two bands like neither of them could afford to go into the studio on their own but they would like go in on a cd and they would each have like half of it uh there there's this band in boston called big d and the kids table they were like a scott punk band that i was really into and uh their first album was like that and one of the like selling points i remember like i remember spending so long agonizing in the music store over this because i was like i can't like i want to hear everything how can i find a way to maximize what i'm going to be able to hear i've already got the first four punkaramas what do i do i'll try to get something that has multiple recordings but i don't know actually i remember discord records had a thing like this that was like mm. three or four of theirs on like one cd it was that was just like mind-blowing it was like you had found the greatest treasure you could ever imagine hmm. by the yes. way i think of uh anthologies like this punk rock and philosophy book as a comp so one of the reasons i was super excited to get an essay in it is because i wanted to contribute an essay you know a piece to the comp because i know that everybody else who's writing in this knows other people who like punk who like philosophy whatever and you're gonna say hey you should check this out and so all your people are gonna be reading my shit too and that's what i wanted is i want you know and i'm trying to hook this up with people i know so they all read your shit so yeah i think about anthologies like this like a comp so uh hopefully that is a nice paradigm shift and we can all 
promote each other. <laughs> I don't want to be the guy who's like, you know, kids today don't understand. <laughs> kids today do not understand how awesome it was to get a to get a CD, right? That was like it. It was an event. It was and it, there were stakes, right? Because it might not be great, right? It might like so. Um, yeah, it was, it was. It's so different now. And you know, I obviously we wouldn't go back. We have so much at our fingertips. It's it, that's a, a something awesome in itself. But I do sort of. Uh, I have a nostalgia for that. Um, that type, that era, right? Where yeah, like a tape or um, you know, if somebody makes you a mixtape or or a CD, how it's so important to, to grab one. Um, my sort of entry uh, was Bad Religions, Stranger Than Fiction, and people sort of chide them because that was their, they moved to a major label and they re-recorded a song to release as a single. But you know, as a, as a kid growing up in suburban St. Louis, I'm not saying this is my one opportunity to get into punk, but it did catch me at you know, just the right time and you know, were it not for that, um, for better or for worse, you know, I, I might not have the same amount of affinity uh, that uh, for punk that I do. Um, so that was an important album. If I had to pick one, uh, man, in college, I, I was fortunate enough to pick up the um, complete works of The Police, in, and it's laid out chronologically. And that, that first that first disc is very punk, and um, that, might be, that might be my go-to, the, just early, early Police. Just want to speak to that, the, this point too, the end with comps and, and everything like that. Kids, don't, kids these days don't understand how expensive freaking records were back then. Oh my God, you know, you're paying $15 and more for an album back in the 1980. That, that's like $100 today. It's <laughs> So we used to form kind of music collectives, you know, that I would buy certain albums and my friends would buy other albums and we would get together and listen to them to, to try and uh, get around that. So record collectives was or other way around that whole expense. It's a lot easier these days, of course, but you don't have the album covers and all that cool paraphernalia that goes with it. Yeah, I just wanted to make a remark about regionalism. Like growing up, we were obviously very exposed to the local acts and uh, yes, definitely Patti Smith was a figure larger than life in every way. Also the Heartbreakers and, and, you know, the dolls before them, the Johnny Thunder's outfits and the Heartbreakers were sort of a assembly of people that already you know, gained a lot of fame and other punk and proto-punk bands. So those were important to us, really important to us, but we weren't, we weren't committed to like local scene over everything else. So like I remember when The Decline came out, The Decline and Fall of Western Civilization, the film, we went to see it at the Bleecker Street Playhouse, which at the time had a screen that was like, smaller than most, you know, contemporary TV sets. And it was pocked with these little holes. Like, I think they were actually, the, the screen itself was manufactured with holes in it for some reason, a terrible movie theater underground. And they played this film with all these early hardcore bands from mostly from LA and some from San Francisco. And it was like, wow, this is, this is really exciting music. There was stuff like that happening on the East Coast too, but it really felt fresh and exciting. And that led to you know, discovery of bands that were in the film, like The Bags, Alice Bag was really an important supporter of that uh, scene in LA, but bands uh, in Northern California who weren't in the film, like The Gills and especially The Avengers were really important to me. Cleveland bands um, like The Pagans were really important to me and The Dead Boys who came and hung out in New York a lot. Um, but of course also the Brit bands. So if I had to, you know, pick my Desert Island one record, um, it would be germ-free adolescence by the X-ray specs, which I think is is just an amazing, you know, forward-looking, uh, unsurpassed piece of punk rock. Speaking of that, um, Jesse, have you been seeing the, the um, show that's out by um, Polystyrene's daughter talking about um, her mother and some of that? I haven't I haven't looked at it yet, but it, it looks interesting. Book, she did. She put together this tribute volume that was like came with all this swag and, and uh, in a you know pretty box. And uh, you know, it's she I saw a docu I saw her documentary. I mean, she was fairly alienated from her mother growing up and uh, you know, has dealt with that. And her mother was a complicated person who also wrestled with mental illness. So uh, those aspects of it, and of course having this biracial identity and working class uh, roots living in a you know, pretty hostile, economically hostile um, London at the time. Uh, that Just that sociological backstory is hugely interesting. But I found, you know, some of the tributes that the daughter has done 
are so much about working out her her relationship with her mother and kind of less about the scene or the movement because she wasn't a ringside observer. Um, it's a perspective that doesn't necessarily speak to uh, to those who want to learn more about what, what it was like when the band was forming, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So um, I think we're probably about out of time. We're just about to hit the hour mark. So thank you very much for um, agreeing to be on the podcast. And um, we appreciate all your comments and insights. And this has been a lot of fun. I think that'll be a, a nice episode. Yeah, good talking to you all. I can just say, uh, you know, to um, echo Richard's comments earlier, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be a part of um, a handful of these volumes now on the editorial side. And sometimes, you know, I'll go in thinking, um, you know, this is a fun project and it would be really cool to uh, put together a thoughtful book for lovers of the source material. Um, but with, with um, projects like this, I go in thinking, you know, this is a thing that like capital N needs to exist. The universe, uh, it would be better with this in it. And uh, I definitely felt, yeah, I feel like that for sure with this project. And I, not only does it just, uh, did we make it happen, but, uh, um, you know, we did it upright. And, uh, thanks to everybody. Um, dream come true, quite literally. Yeah, and Josh, thanks for, for coming up with the, um, the, the plan for the whole book. It's been great. Hey, Josh, can I ask you a question? You, sure. you, you said you grew up in St. Louis. I did. As, as I did. So um, do you know anything about the, the early punk rock scene in St. Louis? Was uh... Very, very little. There was a website called STL Punk that right. did archive some history stuff. But that was, yeah, like a lot of it, that was a little bit before my time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if, there's, if there were resources or anything, I'd love to, to read about it. Yeah, well, there was the St. Louis Punk Archive, yeah. which maybe you know about. Yep. Have you, did, did you ever get your hands on a copy of Jetline? I, I haven't. I have to, if you can uh, give me that, would be great. Sure. Okay. It's all up, George. <laughs> huh? It's all up. I spent five uh, lovely years in St. Louis, so I'd I love to uh, be able to pay respects to the founders of that Okay, Rach, what are we liking this week? Well, we've still been kind of in the Breaking Bad universe revisiting that, so we haven't done much. Yeah, so El Camino started Better Call Saul again. Um, but there was one thing, right? We um, There's a comedian, Patton Oswalt, who we've known about for years and liked in lots of things. Uh, but he's got a new special on Netflix, so we started watching that. And then other Patton Oswalt um, comedy specials. And his, his stand-up's great. It's, I, I hadn't seen it before. And, and yeah, it's, it's much better than I thought it would be. And I, and I thought it would be um, pretty good. I have a pretty high opinion of him. Oh, you haven't seen his stand-up before? Uh-uh. I've oh. seen him on tons of shows. And then his Twitter presence, oh. especially during the pandemic, uh -huh. was great. Um, but he's got a kind of shtick that I really like. Mm -hmm. So he'll, he'll tell some story. And then the story will involve some metaphor then he starts exploring the metaphor like it's reality <laughs> and you know and then he's just been off in this world of this crazy metaphor for you know however many minutes um you know one bit was about bringing home some new exercise equipment mm -hmm. you know and then the old exercise equipment's there like some old nag in the barn going <laughs> you're the new guy you think they're gonna ride you every day and mm -hmm. you know and then the next thing you know he's just talking about these things like they're real you know and what if this thing got up and did that? What if it did that? Um, and and he's just you know, completely imaginative, right? Mm -hmm. So I watch a lot of stand-up, and it's a whole bunch of jokes about, gosh, hooking up with people sure sucks, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, and not very often I think it's that. Um, creative. It, it's all that, yeah, creative or clever. Um, so it reminds me kind of of um, John Maloney, right? Same sort of thing. I mean, he can just riff to the weirdest places on nothing mm -hmm. and um so yeah i'll um, maybe without spoiling any more of it just say um becoming a really big fan of pat oswalt's yeah. stand-up bit and, and highly recommend it yeah okay 
Okay, Rates. Well, that's a wrap. Episode 67 is in the can. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with an all-new episode, one that's even better than we thought it would be, and um, frankly, better than we all deserve. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to our webpage. It's ithinkthereforeifan.com, all one word. Click on the link that says donate and become a Patreon sponsor. See you soon.